You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Glad you guys are here this morning. You are uh, the select few that come on Time Change morning. You're not quite at the caliber of those who came to the first service on a rainy morning, but, uh, but we're still glad they're here and proud of you. Um, I think uh, as, we, as we begin this uh, study in John chapter 18, verse 19, uh, I think something that, that is important for us to see is that we all have issues with authority at some level. And this begins when we're children. Uh, we have issues with our parents. And when we go to school, uh, we have issues with our teachers. And we have issues with referees. And we see these authority issues continue from our childhood into our adulthood. And so then as adults, we have uh, issues with our boss, or we have issues with the government, uh, or we have issues with police. Uh, You know, hypothetically, we're driving 75 miles an hour down Alcoa Highway without anyone else on the road, and the police feel like that's not a good idea. I'm not saying I've experienced this, but hypothetically, right, we have issues with police. We have issues with any sense of accountability uh, or any sense of someone who tries to tell us what we should or should not do because we don't like authority. We have issues with authority. And what we see in this passage of Scripture in John chapter 18 through 19 is we see Jesus is having issues with authority. He is standing before an authority. And he has already, we've seen last week, he has stood before uh, the high priest. And the result of that trial is that he has a swollen face and a busted lip. And he's sent on to Pilate. And now today we'll see Jesus will stand before Pilate, who is the Roman military governor. And uh, he, uh, he will stand before him and be tried by Pilate. But is, what is going on here is actually bigger than just a Roman governor looking at the trial of a man who is accused. But what we see here is actually the clash of two kingdoms. Uh, we will see the kingdom of this world as it's represented by Pilate. And we'll see the kingdom of God as it's represented by Christ. And, and I believe that, that these kingdoms are just as active and real as they were 2,000 years ago when these events unfolded. And the message uh, that we see from them is just as relevant and real to us today as it was then. And the question that I hope we'll ask ourselves as we consider these two kingdoms this morning is which kingdom are you a part of? Because each kingdom has a different way of living, and each kingdom follows a different king. And so let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 18. As I said, we will pick up in verse 28, and we will read through uh, chapter 19, verse 16. So beginning in verse 28 of chapter 18, we hear God speak through his word. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us 
to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered into the, over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing you out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that though we are in a world that is controlled by a king, that we know that one day the true king will return. And we thank you for the fact that you are that king, that Jesus is a king who brings truth and life into a world that's filled with lies and confusion and death. And so, Father, we pray today that that, that true king would be honored through this time, that we would come to know more about you, Father, that we would consider our own hearts and our own lives, and ultimately that as a result of this time, we would be more completely surrendered to your kingdom. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to consider two kingdoms, and we're going to look first at a kingdom that I believe is, is presented in this passage, and it's the kingdom of the world. And the first thing we see about the kingdom of the world is that it trusts in the power of the sword. Now, we see that this group of Jewish leaders and soldiers has brought Jesus to Pilate. And we see the reason that they have brought Jesus to Pilate in verse 31. 
when Pilate asks them basically why they don't take care of them the, this themselves, uh, the Jews say, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. You see, they knew that Pilate had the power of the sword. And in the scriptures, uh, the power of the sword refers to the power that a government or an authority figure has uh, to kill, to bring about justice and ultimately the political power behind that. And this is why the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate, because they wanted him to use that authority, the power of the sword, to accomplish their purposes, which was ultimately to kill Christ. And they knew that Pilate used this power regularly. He was known to be an incredibly violent man who executed people at will. Uh, One time in Mark, we see that Pilate actually killed a group of Jews and then took their blood and mixed it with the blood of the animal sacrifices that they were offering. And so an incredibly violent man who used the power of the sword. And we see that the Jews trusted in this power and in this authority. Uh, And we see that Pilate viewed himself this way in verse 19.10. When he asked Jesus where he's from and Jesus refused to answer, Pilate says, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify. You, you see, Pilate trusted in his power. He saw himself as superior to Jesus. He saw Jesus as being surrendered to his authority and his power. And the Jews saw this in the same way. They saw Pilate as a power and authority over even Jesus. And they wanted him to use this power for their purposes. And then we see this, this trust by the Jews in the power of the sword once again at the end of our passage in Uh, Chapter 19, verse 15, when after they've called for the crucifixion of Christ, they yell out, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. And what, what is odd about this is the Jews were the people of God. They were the people who were called to serve God alone as their king. And yet we see in these words that they have rejected the very power of God. And instead they have trusted in the political power of the sword. You see, they knew God was supposed to be their king. But the powers of the world were more real to them than the power of God. And I think if we're honest, that that we would have to say that we experience this in our own lives too. Because we know that we should trust God. We know that we should surrender to his power. But if we're honest, the worldly powers around us seem a little more real and a little more impressive. And so... We look for human kings, right? Whether that's a person who's in a political office or just someone who's involved in the politics of your office, right? We look to someone that we can trust in, that we can latch on to, to connect to their power, and ultimately, like the Jews, to use that worldly power to serve our own purposes. And so just like the Jews, we cry out, we have no king but Caesar. And we try, ultimately, to trust in the kingdom of God, of God, of this world and rejecting the power of God and trusting in the power of the sword. And so, and so we see this. This is part of the worldly kingdom. We see it in the Jews. We see it in Pilate. And if we're honest, we see it in our own lives as well. The next thing we see about the kingdom of this world is that they reject the truth. Um, in verse 37, uh, Jesus speaks to Pilate. He tells him who he is. And Jesus says that he is a king who has come to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate's response to this is to completely reject the statement. And he he, he makes the statement, what is truth? And then he turns and walks away and leaves 
Jesus and returns to the crowd. And what, what I think we see here in, in Pilate's rejection of this concept of the truth and rejection of the concept that Jesus would bear witness to the truth it is true of the powers of the world. And, and it's true of our culture. And if we're honest, it's so often true of our own lives. You see, the world has always fought against the concept that someone else can tell them what is true. And so we, in our culture, but I think it's always been the case, we live uh, by the philosophy that's what's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is truth for me. And, and they may be completely opposite, right? Those may, opposites may be, uh, statements may be just as opposite as I am saying today is day. And you are saying, no, it is night. And yet we refuse to accept that there's some outside authority that can determine what is true for us. And the reason is, the reason that we reject this truth, the reason that our culture rejects truth and the kingdom of the world rejects this concept of an outside authority of truth is because we ultimately don't really want there to be a God. And we see this in a philosopher who I think represents uh, much of our culture today. Uh, there's a man named Thomas Nagel who's one of the more uh, famous philosophers. He's, a, he's a, uh, very much an atheist who rejects belief in God. Uh, but he writes this in his book, The Last Word. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. You see, Romans 1 tells us that we all, the most staunch atheists and each of us this morning, at some level, we all innately within our hearts know that there's a God. We know that this is the truth. But with the kingdom of this world, we reject that truth. Right? Why? Because we don't want to be accountable. We want to be gods and goddesses who do our own thing, right? who define truth for ourselves, and we don't want there to be any eternal consequences for our actions. And so because of this, we reject the truth, and we reject the true king who claims to have the authority to bring truth into our lives. And with Pilate, we make the statement, what is truth? The next thing we see about the kingdom of this world is not only that they reject the truth, but, but the next thing is that they exchange the guilty for the innocent. Now, John is very intentional. As you read through this passage, you keep seeing certain words pop up over and over. And John wants us to know that Pilate believes that, that Jesus is innocent, right? He, he keeps saying, I find no guilt in him in verse 1838, in verse 194, verse 196, right? Pilate clearly knows Jesus is innocent. He is not guilty of the charges that are being brought against him, but the Jews will not accept this answer. And so Pilate decides he has a loophole, right? He has a way out, and he knows that every year at Passover they release one prisoner, and so he, know, he believes that, that he can get himself out of this predicament if he gets the, the worst, most notorious, most violent, dangerous criminal and he presents them to the Jews that surely they will choose to release Jesus instead of letting this violent criminal go free. And so the person that, that Pilate chooses is Barabbas, right? And, and what we know about Barabbas is that ultimately he was a terrorist, 
Now, our passage of Scripture says that he was a robber, but when you read the other Gospels, you see that he essentially was a terrorist. He, he led a revolt against Rome, and it was kind of this religious revolt, and, and he murdered people, and he, he robbed people, and, and, and there was this incredibly violent thing that he was part of. And, and he would have been seen, just like in our day, a terrorist. He would have been uh, looked down upon, despised, seen as some way of the scum of the earth. And Pilate thinks that obviously if, if people see this clearly guilty man who has done such terrible things, that they would not want him released back into the public and they will choose instead to release Jesus. But we see that their hatred of Jesus was so great that when they were given the choice between the clear guilt of Barabbas and the obvious innocence of Jesus, they chose Barabbas. And if we're honest, so do we. You see, in many ways, Barabbas is, like Pilate, another picture of worldly power. Now, he's, he's not quite as refined as Pilate. He's a little more gritty. He's kind of the backwoods version of Pilate. But they operate by the same motives, right? They want to get what they want through worldly force and physical power and violence. And ultimately, we know that within the world, within our flesh, we're drawn to that. Right? We're drawn to that strength and that success and that brute force. And, and so we will look to people who are clearly sinful, right? people who, who clearly reject God. And yet when we see their success, when we see their strength, when we see their boldness in our flesh, we are drawn to trust in them. We're drawn to lust and to worldly power. And then we consider Jesus up against this, this kingdom, right? Up against the Barabbas of the world. And, and when we look at Jesus, we know in our hearts that what he says is right, right? We see his call to love and to sacrifice and to serving others, and we know it's right, but it just doesn't quite have the appeal that Barabbas does, right? It, it can almost feel boring up against this draw to our flesh. And so what do we do? Over and over, we choose the power of the world, Right? We, we choose the pleasures of the world, and we choose the flesh over our faith. And so ultimately, we deny Jesus, and we choose Barabbas. But the next thing we see in this, point, uh, in this passage about the kingdom of the world is that it surrenders to the pressures of the crowd. It surrenders to the pressures of the crowd. Now, now, we have said that Pilate does not want to crucify Jesus. He believes he's innocent. He wants to let him go, right? But, but ultimately, something else happens that's not in John, but is recorded in the other Gospels, and, and that is that Pilate's wife sends him a message. Now, if your wife sends you a message and it's something important, you should take it seriously. Just a word to the wise, right? His wife sends him a message, and what she says is have nothing to do with that righteous man because she has suffered a great deal in a dream, right? And, and, and at this time, the Romans would have taken these dreams to be very important. And, and so Pilate is beginning to, to feel like this man is more than just an ordinary man that these Jews are jealous of. And then we see in 19.7, he hears the Jews say that Jesus is claimed to be the Son of God. And when he hears this, his response is it frightens him. Right? He, he begins to be frightened by who this man is. He knows he's innocent, and now he's beginning to have suspicions that he really might be more than just a man. And so he thinks that, that he can come up with a plan to satisfy the Jews and still not crucify him. And so he takes Jesus, and he has him flogged and beaten. Right? His flesh is, is torn off, and then he takes this crown of thorns, and he shoves it into his skull. And then he brings Jesus out but just bleeding and tattered with a purple robe hung over his, 
his torn and bleeding body. And what he's trying to do is say, this is sufficient punishment, right? Anything that Jesus may have done, this is sufficient punishment. But we see that the Jews won't accept it. They won't accept that this is enough. They want a crucifixion. And we see them, them basically threaten Pilate when they say, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend because everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And, and what they're telling him is if you let this man go, we will go to Caesar. And we will tell Caesar that there is a man who's claiming to be a king, who's claiming to be a rival to Caesar. And if Caesar hears that you have released him, then you will definitely lose your position of authority and you will likely lose your life. And Pilate is ultimately more concerned about that, right? And so when he hears the Jews cry out, crucify him, he gives in to the pressure of the crowd. Because nothing is more important to him than his position of power and authority. And he's more worried about losing his power than he is about murdering an innocent man, even the Son of God. And other gospel accounts tell us that after Pilate does this, he feels guilt. Right? He knows that what he has done is wrong, but, but he cannot risk losing his power. And so what he does is he, he, he does a symbolic act of he, of he washes his hands. And he tries to say he's innocent of this man's blood. But we know that clearly there's no amount of washing of his hands that can wash away the guilt of this act. And it's easy for us to read this passage and, and see Pilate and, and see the Jews and, and look down upon them. And think that we would have done something very different in this circumstance. But the truth is, is we, we wouldn't have. Right? No one stands for Jesus. And the Bible tells us that all of us have turned away from Jesus. Right? We all know that just like Pilate and just like the Jews, we have chosen the approval of others or the power of this world over Christ over and over again. And so with the crowd, we cry out, crucify him. And there's no amount of washing our hands or attending church or doing good things that can wash away the guilt of that sin. And so this is a picture. This is a picture of the kingdom of the world that we have seen as the way the world works and the way the world operates. And I hope that, that we see even in our own lives, uh, there's components of that, right? There, there's components of the world that work within us. And, and ultimately, uh, I want to present to you now a, a second kingdom that I believe John presents to us. And this is uh, the kingdom that is, is the opponent, right? The rival at some level to the kingdom of this world. And that is the kingdom... Of Christ, And we'll notice several things that, that this passage tells us about the kingdom of Christ. The first thing that we see is that the kingdom of Christ receives the truth. We've seen that the, the kingdom of this world rejects the truth, right? We don't want the authority over us. We don't want accountability, and so we reject the king, and we reject his truth. But, but those who are part of the kingdom of Christ receive the truth. And we see in John 18, 37, Jesus says, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. While the world says that the truth is relative, right? Jesus says there is truth and he has come into the world to give us that truth. Now, I have a four-year-old son named Judson. And uh, Judson has a little brother named John Martin who's one year old. And, and what will often happen in our household is Judson will, will walk by John Martin. And, and all of a sudden, at the same time as he walks by, John Martin will begin to cry. And Judson will immediately yell out, almost 
without fail, I didn't do anything, right? Maybe you guys have experienced this yourselves. Um, and, and so what I have to do is I have to come into this situation of him yelling out, right, his version of the truth, and I have to, to, to bring some authority and speak truth into this situation. And I think in some ways that's a picture of what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus comes into a world of people who are yelling out their own versions of the truth. He comes into a world of confusion and lies and he takes a position of authority. And he stands over us and he speaks the truth. And he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And, and he's saying, here's how you know who's on the side of truth and who's on the side of error. Those who are on the side of truth are those who listen to my voice. And those who reject me, those who refuse to listen to what I have to say, they're on the side of error. Now, now if I made this kind of a comment, right? If, if I said, look, anyone who agrees with me is right, and, and anyone who disagrees with me is, is wrong, how would you respond to that? Well, that would be the most incredibly arrogant thing for a person to say. Now, now, many of us may know people, if we're honest, who do kind of have this opinion, right? They think that, that those who agree with them on, on their issues of politics or sports or anything else are right. And anyone who would, would dare to disagree with them, you know, is just an idiot on the side of error, right? Don't point fingers if that person is here this morning. But the truth is that Jesus is not just a man. And he's not just making an arrogant statement but he is the king who has the rightful authority to determine what is true. And the truth is today, he makes the same claim over each and every one of our lives today. He has the authority to define what is true for us. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we listening to him? Right? Do we allow him to define truth for us. And, and some of us may say, well, sure, I'm listening to him, but if you're honest, it's you listen to him the way that you sometimes listen to your wife, right? She says things, they enter the cavity of your ear canal, but you don't actually do anything about them, right? You're not paying attention. I think what Jesus is saying is those who are part of his kingdom listen with the intent of obedience, right? They allow him to define truth and they live a life and surrender to him. And so the question is, are we of the kingdom of Christ? And, and this is how we, this is the way in, right? At some level, this is the way into the kingdom of Christ, is, is humbly saying, I, I surrender my right to define truth for myself. And I choose to believe that what Jesus says about himself and about me and about this world is true. And I surrender all of my life to him and ultimately humbly believe what he says. And this is the way into the kingdom of Christ. Because it means that we're surrendered to him and he rules over us by the power of his truth. And so this is what the kingdom of Christ does. It receives the truth from the king. The next thing we see about the kingdom of Christ is it trusts in the innocent exchange for the guilty. The kingdom of Christ trusts in the innocent exchange for the guilty. Now we've seen in the, the situation with Barabbas that the kingdom of this world uh, basically rejects the innocent. And, and exchanges him for the guilty. They choose to release Barabbas. But ultimately, as we continue to look in this more and more, I think there's something that's very important that we learn about the kingdom of Christ from the same uh, story of Barabbas. In, in 18 verses 39 through 40, uh, the convicted criminal Barabbas is chosen to be released, and Jesus is chosen to be crucified 
in his place. And so what we see is we see the innocent man, right, is, is convicted and killed. And the guilty man is released and, and, and let to go free. And the, the reason why this is so important is that Jesus took Barabbas's physical place on the cross, right? Barabbas was on death row. And he had a cross that was built and prepared for him. But he was allowed to go free and have life. And Jesus, the innocent man, took his place and was killed on the cross for him. But in the same way as Jesus was killed in the physical place of Barabbas, Jesus was killed in the spiritual place of each and every one of us who will trust in him today. Right? Jesus was the innocent man and we were the guilty men and women. We're all guilty of sin. And we deserve to be punished. We deserve death as penalty for our sin. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus took our place on the cross. Right? He substituted himself, though he was innocent and had done nothing wrong. He took our place on the cross to take our punishment so that we might have life. And ultimately, Jesus died as our substitute just as much as he died as the substitute for Barabbas. And the only way into the kingdom of Christ, and really the only way to continue to live in the the kingdom of Christ, is to continually trust over and over that we are sinners who deserve death. But Jesus is the loving and gracious king who died in our place as our substitute so that we might be set free and have life. Right? And that's what the kingdom of Christ is all about, is continually reminding ourselves and remembering that fact, that Jesus was the substitute, he was the innocent man substituted for our guilt. The next point we see about the kingdom of Christ is that those who are part of the kingdom of Christ trust in the power of the Spirit. Right? We've seen that the, the kingdom of this world trusts in the power of the sword. We trust in the violence, we trust in the political power, we trust in the brute force. But the kingdom of Christ is very different than that. And we see this as as Jesus stands before Pilate. We see two very different kings and two very different kingdoms. And when when Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Basically, Jesus says, what you say is is correct. I, I am a king. But he clarifies. He's a different kind of king than what Pilate expected and the kind of king that Pilate was. Because Jesus says, my kingdom is not like your kingdom. My kingdom is not based on political power or violence, and ultimately my kingdom is not of this world. And he said, if it had been, if if my kingdom was of this world, like the Jews are claiming, then my followers would be fighting, right? My followers would would be pulling out their swords and fighting for me, but they haven't. And in fact, when we saw Pastor Trent preached on on Peter, when he pulled out his sword to cut off the ear of uh, the, the servant of the high priest, ultimately, what does Jesus do? He doesn't applaud him and encourage his other followers to do the same thing. He rebukes him, right? And, and because that is not what the kingdom of Christ is like. It does not move forward by, by physical force or weapons. And, and this is important for us to see because this affects how we live our lives. Because the reason that followers of Christ, the reason that those who are part of the kingdom of Christ don't pick up weapons and don't fight is because they know that their hope is ultimately not in this life. And in the powers and pleasures and treasures of this world. If this world is where we place our hope, if this world is where our treasure is ultimately, then it only makes sense that we would fight to protect it, right? That we would fight to to gain money, to gain power, to, to maintain our status. And maybe we don't fight with swords, but we fight with worldly weapons all the same. 
We fight with manipulation. We fight with control. We fight with office politics. We, tr- we fight with just the brute force of our, our personality our, or our position of authority. And we grab whatever worldly weapon we can and we fight for our kingdom. But the problem is, is that when you live that way, you live in fear. Because you're constantly in fear of, of losing everything that you have your hope in. Right? Because if you lose your power, if you lose your money, if you lose relationships, if, if somehow you don't measure up, then you lose all of your hope. But that's not the case for those who are part of the kingdom of Christ. We don't live that way because our hope is not in the things of the world. And so we're free to take or leave money and power and success. They're good things. Right? And if we get them, we can use them for good. We can be generous with our money. We can help other people with our power and authority, but they don't control us. And I think that's a fundamental difference. If, if money and, and power comes our way, great, we can use it for good. But if it begins to go, we don't get depressed. We don't lose our hope. We still trust that God is in control and he was working even through the situation we're going through. And so I think the question is, as we consider ourselves, where do we live on that spectrum, right? Are we using worldly powers to fight to protect worldly things, worldly treasures, worldly success? Are we ultimately surrendered to the kingdom of Christ, knowing that our hope is ultimately not in the things of this world? I think the next point that we see here is the kingdom of Christ surrenders to the plan of God. And this is the final point we'll see this morning, is, is that the kingdom of Christ surrenders to the plan of God. Uh, when you read this passage and, and, you, and you look at what all is going on, it looks like Jesus is in big trouble, right? And it looks like everyone around Jesus is in control, that, that the Jewish mob is getting what they want, and that, that Pilate's authority is, is ultimate. And, and ultimately... All of these things are happening according to wicked and evil men who are part of the kingdom of the world. But if you will, if you put on the 3D glasses, right? If you put on the kingdom glasses and you begin to view this passage in light of the gospel, what you begin to see is that God is the one who is truly in power, right? Christ is the king even in this time when it looks like everything is lost. And when Pilate says to Jesus in verse 10 of chapter 19. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Don't you fear me? Don't you see my authority over you? Jesus responds, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. You see, Jesus knows that God is in control and God is working everything according to his sovereign plan. And God is even using this this Jewish mob and this, this evil Roman leader Right? He's using all of these things to accomplish his purpose and his plan. And I think there's two details in this text that point us towards this. The first is in, in eight, chapter 1832, which says this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And, and if you look back through the Gospel of John leading up to this point, Jesus keeps on talking about the way that he's going to die. In some of these passages, John 3, 14, Jesus says, As Moses was li- lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Uh, in John 8, 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. In John 12, 
32 to 33. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And Jesus keeps on using this phrase that the way in which he will die is that he will be lifted up. Right? And what does this mean? And, and, and why is it important? Well, ultimately, the reason this is important is because of an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy chapter 21, which says this. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For, hear this, a hanged man is cursed by God. And, and Paul picks this up in Galatians 3.13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How? For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, God is orchestrating the events of world history to lead everything up to a certain time. Because you see, if the Jews had killed Jesus, you know how they would have killed him? By stoning. We see this over and over. But crucifying a criminal was a punishment that only the Romans had. That only the Romans used. And throughout all of history, God was bringing things about and he was prophesying and pointing towards the day when Christ would be lifted up on a cross. When he would be hung on a tree. Why? Because when he's hung on a tree, he takes the curse of the law upon himself. He takes the curse that you and I deserve for our sin and he becomes cursed in our place on a cross. And God is in control because he is leading all things so that Christ is crucified, so that he is the fulfillment of the scripture, and so that we are set free from the power of the curse. God is in control. And the other point that we see that shows us that, that God's plan is at work here and he is in control is the, the exact time in which Jesus is delivered over to be crucified. We see it says that Pilate gives his final verdict is at the sixth hour, which was noon, on the day of preparation of the Passover. Now, that may not seem like a big deal. We may skim over that when we read it. But the sixth hour on the day of preparation of the Passover was the exact time that in the temple, the priests would have been bringing forward the lambs. And they would have pulled out their knives and placed them on the table. And they would have begun slitting their throats and letting their blood run to be the sacrifices that will be used in the Passover celebration. And it is at this exact hour that Christ is delivered over to be crucified. You see what God is doing here? He's saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. And he has orchestrated the events of world history and the forces of nature to bring about his plan at the exact time to show us that Christ is our Passover lamb. That he is the one whose blood will be spilled so that ours might be spared. God is in control of all of this. And even when it looks like everyone in the world is in control. And God is sovereign. And I want to point us to another passage that shows us the, 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 the conflict between these two world power, the, the power of the world and the power of Christ. And, and what happens is after Jesus is crucified... And after Jesus is buried, Pilate sends his guards out on the most impossible uh, task that has ever been assigned. He, he says, I am afraid that some of Jesus' disciples will go and they'll try to steal his body to make it look like he raises from the dead. And so he tells them, he says, go, he tells them to go to the tomb where Christ is buried. And he says, go and make it 
as secure as you can. And we know how that worked out. Because the truth is that there is no Roman ruler. There is no human power. That even the power of Satan himself could not keep Christ in the grave. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is which power are we trusting in? Which kingdom are we a part of? And if you're honest, as you analyze these kingdoms, if you would say, I'm, I really, if I, if I analyze my, my life and I analyze what I believe and what I trust in and how I live, I'm part of the kingdom of the world. I want to tell you, be careful. Because that kingdom ends at the grave. But there's another kingdom. There's a kingdom that follows the king who walked out of the tomb. And he's the king who promises that he will return one day for his people to establish his kingdom for all of eternity. And my hope and my desire is that each one of us will recognize we want to follow that king. Right? Following the kingdoms of the world is short-sighted. Following the kingdom of Christ is what leads us to eternal glory. And the way that you do that, the way that you enter the kingdom of Christ, the way that you move from the kingdom of the world and into the kingdom of Christ is fundamentally by surrendering to Christ as your king. By by believing the truth of what he says, believing he really did live the life you failed to live, he really did die the death you deserve to die, and then he rose from the grave and surrendering your life, every area of your life, to him as king. Trusting that he is a better king than you are, right? And, And that's the fundamental step you have to realize. You have to realize you make a crummy king. You're not a good king. You failed yourself over and over and over and to think that anything will will change if you remain in that position of authority over your life is foolish. And so what you're called to do is realize you cannot be the ruler of your life. And you must step off of the throne of your heart and take off whatever crown you're wearing and surrender your life to Christ as king. If you want to do that, if you want to trust in Christ as your Savior, we have people in the care and prayer room who would love nothing more than to tr- talk with you about being saved and trusting Christ. But there are many of us here today who would say, I've, I've taken that step. If I'm honest, I, I believe I'm part of the kingdom of Christ. I've surrendered my life to him. But if we're honest, where we're at in our life is, is we've slowly began to creep back over. And we, we've slowly began to sit down on the throne of our heart. And we've picked up the rusty crown that had been laying on the ground and we've put it back on our heads. And the call for you is the same call on the day that you were saved. is to repent and to believe. To turn from your sin, to turn from trying to be your own king and to trust that Jesus is still a better king than you'll ever be. And the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus as our king is we know that when we return to him, He doesn't bring vengeance like the kings of this world. But instead we'll find that he's a king who's standing waiting for us to receive us with open arms. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the fact that we are not left to the kingdom of this world. Father, I pray for for myself, for each of us who are so prone to follow the kingdoms of this world, to to follow the powers of this world, to to use the weapons of this world, try to claw and scrape and protect our our power and 
and our authority and our success and our possessions. And Father, I pray that we would realize that all of that ends up in a grave. And I pray that you would give us the faith to see beyond the kingdom of this world, but to see that you truly are the king, that you are worthy of the surrender of every single area of our lives, and that we would step off the throne of our hearts, that we would lay down the rusty crowns on our head and surrender everything to you as king, because you're a good king who loves us and is gracious, and we're thankful for that fact. It's the name of Christ Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at Foothills Church.